This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. One of the more unusual communication modes that you'll occasionally hear on the HF bands is known as Hellschreiber. Many hams consider Hellschreiber to be a digital mode, and you'll hear it in the digital subbands. But is it really digital? Well, yes and no. Let's back up a bit. In fact, let's back up about 70 years. Hellschreiber was invented in the late 1920s by a fellow named Rudolf Hell. He called it Hellschreiber as a kind of German play on words. Hell roughly translates to bright and Schreiber to writing. So Hellschreiber is bright writing. It is really a kind of facsimile rather than a digital mode as we come to know it. Hellschreiber uses tones like digital modes, but the tones are not being decoded into letters, numbers, and punctuation. Instead, Hellschreiber tones are used to simply indicate whether a pixel on the screen should be on or off. Hellschreiber sends a line of text as a series of vertical columns. Each column is broken down vertically into a series of pixels, normally using a 7 by 7 pixel grid to represent the characters. The data for a line is then sent as a series of on-off signals to the receiver using a variety of formats, but normally at a rate of about 112 baud. So Hellschreiber is digital in the sense that on-off tones are being transmitted and a display created by software at the receiving end. But it's really up to your brain to do the decoding. In other words, you have to look at the grayscale characters and read them. There are several different types of Hellschreiber, but the one most commonly heard in amateur radio is called Feld Hell. It's pretty easy to pick out a Feld Hell signal because it doesn't sound like anything else you probably hear on the band. Listen to this. So while you're receiving this signal and hearing this audio, your software is creating line after line of gray text on your monitor. If the signal fades, the characters will become faint, but as long as you can still see them and read them, you can understand what is being sent. Unlike a true digital communications mode, Hellschreiber isn't all or nothing. I've experienced some pretty faint Hellschreiber signals, and I've still been able to read through some pretty deep fades. Although Feld Hell is the most popular, there are other variations. You might run into PSK Hell, which decodes a pixel's brightness in the carrier's phase instead of its amplitude. It operates at about 105 or as high as 245 baud. There is FM Hell, which uses FM, as you would assume. Duplo Hell is a dual tone mode that sends two columns at a time at different frequencies. You may also run into concurrent multi-tone Hell and sequential multi-tone Hell, but not very often. There's even though a fascinating narrow bandwidth mode called Slow Feld. It sends data at very slow rates with a bandwidth of just a few hertz. How slow? Well, the transmission rate is about three characters per second, or even less. Slow Feld is intended for communication under very poor conditions. In fact, some are playing with it on our new 2200 meter band. 
If you're interested in giving Hellschreiber a try, most of the digital software packages include Feldhell among its list of options. If you're already set up to operate other digital modes, such as FT8, you can use the same setup to run Hellschreiber. I generally find most Feldhell activity on 20 meters, between about 14.063 and 14.069 megahertz. Go to Google and do a search on the Feldhell Club. This is a pretty active group, and they've got a nice website. They sponsor short Hellschreiber sprint contests every month. In fact, there's one coming up on August 15th. If you're looking for something different to try, look into Hellschreiber. Or as the irresistible pun goes, maybe we'll see you in hell. A few episodes ago, I spoke with Ed Hare, W1RFI, the ARRL laboratory manager, about wireless power transfer. You may remember that episode. To refresh your memory, just in case, this is the technology commonly used to charge devices such as smartphones, cordless toothbrushes, and other products. You may have some in your house. You simply place the device within a short distance of the charger, and the charger recharges the battery by transferring electrical power using an RF signal. Several companies are investigating wireless power transfer technology as a means to charge the batteries of electric vehicles. Rather than plugging your car into a charging cable, you'd park it above a charger embedded in the ground, presumably in your garage, and it would charge your car's battery wirelessly. ARRL has been keeping a close eye on vehicle charging technology because it has the potential to cause widespread interference to amateur radio. These chargers use powerful RF signals to accomplish the power transfer, and they often do it on fluctuating frequencies. Well, now there is a new development in this technology. In a way, I suppose it's the next logical step. Rather than requiring the vehicle to be motionless while it's charging... Why not charge it while it's moving? Three years ago, a couple of researchers at Stanford University built the first system that could wirelessly recharge objects in motion. However, the technology back then was too inefficient to be useful outside of the lab. Well, today, they've made substantial progress, and they've demonstrated a technology that could one day be scaled up to power a car moving down the road. Seriously. In the nearer term, the system could make it practical to wirelessly recharge robots as they move around in a warehouse on a factory floor, for example. That would eliminate downtime and enable the robots to work almost around the clock. In their first breakthrough, three years ago, the researchers developed a wireless charger that could transmit electricity even as the distance to the receiver changed. But that initial system wasn't really efficient enough to be practical. The amplifier used so much electricity to produce the required amplification that the system only transmitted 10% of the power flowing through it. In their new paper, though, the researchers show how to boost the system's wireless transmission efficiency to what they claim is 92%. Apparently, the key is to replace the original amplifier with a far more efficient switch mode amplifier, as they call it. It took years of tinkering and additional theoretical work to design a circuit configuration that apparently does the job. They say the new prototype can wirelessly transmit 10 watts of energy over a distance of 2 or 3 feet. Apparently, there aren't any fundamental obstacles to scaling up this system to transmit tens or hundreds of kilowatts, something that a car would need. The wireless transmission only takes a few milliseconds. A tiny fraction of the time it would take a car moving at 70 miles an hour to cross the four-foot charging zone. 
The only limiting factor is how fast the car's batteries can absorb all that power, though it could take many years before these wireless chargers become embedded in highways. The opportunities for robots and even aerial drones are much more immediate. It's much less costly to embed these chargers in floors or on rooftops rather than on long stretches of highway. Imagine a drone, for example, that could fly all day by swooping down occasionally and hovering on a rooftop just to pick up a quick charge. Now, unfortunately, I was unable to determine what frequencies are used by this device or if the prototype has been tested for its interference potential. Even so, you can be sure the ARRL laboratory will be looking at this one, too. I'm on the telephone with Paul Denisowski, KO4LZ, and you are the product management engineer at Rodian Schwartz North America. Is that right, Paul? That's correct. Okay, I want to make sure I got your title right. And, Paul, I wanted to talk about automatic link establishment, uh, otherwise known as ALE. And just to start, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with the technology, can you give an overview of what it is? Sure, absolutely. So ALE, or Automatic Working Establishment, has been around for a long time. It's actually from the 1980s. And it's a way that, especially at HF, operators can get in touch with each other by having a system that automatically determines the best frequency that can be used or the one that's most likely to succeed. And it also has some other features involved that can help but avoid interference or automatically schedule calls, et cetera. Uh, it's been used really extensively, especially for military and government applications, uh, but it hasn't been that used, heavily used in the ham radio community. Um, there were some um, attempts at using ALE, uh, PCAL, for example, is one example, uh, but it hasn't really caught on. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it today is ALE is being used a lot more in military and government with the new wideband HF and what they call fourth-generation ALE. And so I thought it was maybe time to take another look at ALE and decide, is this something that would be useful for the amateur community as well? What is fourth-generation ALE? Well, the first version of ALE wasn't interoperable, so it wasn't really that useful. Um, but people did see the value of it. So for 2G ALE, uh, second-generation ALG, not 2G, the cellular 2G, um, it became interoperable. And then for 3G ALE, what happened was they added some more features to make it basically more efficient. For 4G ALE, they've added even further features. They do a lot of carrier sensing uh, to see who's on the band and to avoid interference. It also allows you to send very, very short messages. Um, a lot of the operators who use 4G ALE aren't even aware that it's happening because it's, it sends messages very, very quickly and can actually do so during a live conversation. So a lot of advancements, again, in ALE have been very helpful in HF, especially now that propagation's challenging, shall we say. Um, and challenging, yeah, okay. Absolutely challenging <laughs> is a nice word. Um, so it's one of the things that I think could be useful in the amateur community. And um, again, because it allows you to pick automatically pick based on certain criteria, the best frequencies or the frequencies most likely to establish a connection. How would you, just using your imagination, Paul, how would you see this evolving or developing within an amateur radio environment? Well, I, it's, it's actually been in the amateur radio environment for a while. I think it's somewhat fallen into disuse. I do think it would be helpful because we have a situation now, again, propagation-wise, that, that's challenging. I mean, we're at the bottom of a solar cycle, and it that doesn't ever seem to want to end. And one of the things that's difficult is just trying as an amateur to predict what frequency should I use. Um, I know when I operate, for example, I'll start at, at, at 
the highest frequency I guess possible. I'll start at 10 meters, for example, and work my way down and see at what point I'm able to, to make a, a contact with someone. Um, we do have tools in the amateur community. For reverse beacon network is a great example where I can call CQ and then wait a minute and see who heard me, so to speak, and get an idea. Um, and, and this is, is very helpful for me. Um, what I think ALE could bring to it is the ability for connections to be set up automatically instead of us hunting around the bands. Every time I change a band, I have to tune up again on that band, for example, which can cause problems for people. Um, but ALE, you would have historical knowledge of propagation and frequencies and help you make a better educated guess as to where to start when you're looking for a band that will support your particular connection that you'd like to create. Do you see this as something that could be supported by software? In other words, a, an amateur in his shack who has a uh, transceiver that is software controlled. He's got a PC sitting there. Do you see something uh, of that nature, or do you think it has to have dedicated hardware? Oh, it definitely we feel it would be software. I mean, PCAL is a great example. It's software. It's, it's free software. It's been around for a while. I would encourage people to go to the HF Link website. Uh, they have a lot of links and explanations on PCAL. So it would definitely be software only. It's not like Pactor or something like that. You could simply use software or sound card which I think, thanks to things like JT65 and FT8, a lot more hands are familiar with now, the idea of using software in a sound card to send digital modes. And so absolutely, I would see it as a software-only solution. So theoretically, somebody right now who is using cat control of their transceiver, for example, uh, with an interface to their computer, this, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but in theory, at least, it would be a matter of simply installing different software. Do I have that right? Absolutely. I don't think it's an oversimplification at all. It, I've, I've gone through the setup for PCAL, and, and it's very straightforward. Again, if, if you use any kind of digital modes, cat control, etc., for your, your rig and, and your PC, uh, this is nothing difficult whatsoever. Using PCAL as an example, Paul, can you give a hypothetical of what it's like to use this software to make a contact? Sure. Well, normally what you would do is you would have to have a list of frequencies or a list of channels. Um, of course, the stations are monitoring uh, different channels uh, for sounding purposes to determine which channels might be usable. And so one of the ways that you can do that is simply say, this is a call that I'd like to connect to, and it will go and search through and, and try to, to reach that station. You can also use it to send short messages, for example, text-like messages as well. Um, and I, I, this is the main application that I've seen for PCAL so far. Um, and that application, I'm sorry, would be for MCOM-type applications. If you have a disaster situation and you need to send short messages over HF, you know, send 500 liters of water and, and 200 MREs to this station, for example, um, that could be sent as a text message over an ALE uh, link. ALE is actually 8 uh, FSK, so it's fairly robust but has decent data throughput. So this idea of sending short messages especially for MCOM, seems to be the way that ALE is used the most in the amateur community. I've seen that as well, definitely. Now, with ALE, and I hate to show my ignorance here, Paul, but is it possible to have a random contact? In other words, can you call CQ with ALE? <laughs> no, but I wish you could. Um, it's, it's really designed for a network of stations who already know each other. They would all have to already agree on which channels, which frequency. I keep saying channels because that's their terminology in ALE. Um, which channels or frequencies that they would want to work with, and some other parameters would have to be involved, such as the version. Um, so, no, you really couldn't call CQ on it. And unfortunately, it's not really good for that purpose. But on the other hand, if you did have that, that one DX station that you were trying to reach or you're, you're trying to get that last date for loss or whatever it is, 
Um, Ailey might be a solution. I, I know that when I was working some awards, I would look at propagation reports and spotting networks and figure out when a certain station had been on the air. Like, okay, this this um, station in Japan had been on the air every day at this time on this frequency. And I'd basically stake him out, knowing that he probably would be on the air at that time. And on this frequency, I was most likely to hear him again. And I think ALA could be useful for that if you're trying to work that rare DX or that station that's the very limits of your, your reach for your station, uh, given propagation conditions. Then in that case, I think it could be helpful. But uh, no, no calling uh, CQ. <laughs> in addition to having a transceiver that is computer controlled and frequency agile, obviously, I think you would need an antenna system that was equally agile, correct? Exactly. And this, I think, is one of the limiting factors of ALE for the amateur community, or at least for some amateurs like myself. Um, you really need, in order to make it useful, you need a transceiver that's, that's frequency agile. It can change bands automatically. And again, that's trivial to do with any kind of uh, rig control program that you might have. Uh, the issue is the antenna, right? If, if it propagation changes and it turns out that instead of 10 meters, I need to now be at 40 or 80 or, or heaven forbid, 160, um, you would have to have an antenna system that was able to work at all those frequencies. Now, um, there are a lot of really great tuners out there. I use a tuner all the time, but there aren't a whole lot of antenna antennas um, that can easily handle all of those bands. So for military users, they often have switching units, et cetera, that will switch based on the frequency. I know there are a lot of hands who do that as well. But the real challenge, I think, is not getting your rig to change frequency. Again, that's easy. The issue is having an antenna that supports enough frequencies, that, that supports enough bands to make ALE useful for you, again, because it will change frequency based on propagation. Not to cross my concepts, Paul, but how is or is it ALE similar to cognitive radio? It's funny. There's actually, um, it's in the, I think it's the IQT, I can't remember the recommendation off the top. They call something adaptive radio. And I think cognitive and adaptive radio are kind of the same thing. It's the idea that the radio will automatically pick the best frequency, will automatically set up the, the connection, again, that's their terminology, and um, automatically adapt to the situation. So, for example, I say, I need to talk to this person. Well, what is the right frequency? Um, okay, can I set up that, make that connection? And then especially if there's interference, um, if, if it's um, just regular kind of QRM type interference, if they were jamming in a military environment, can the radio automatically detect this and change frequencies? In other words, the radio is aware of the environment and makes decisions automatically. Again, the ITO, I think, calls this adaptive HF. I'm going to assume that cognitive is the same thing. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, I believe it is. I, I think it is. And for that reason, I, I think it's a great thing. I mean, we do this as, as hams all the time. I'm on the band and you know, ask somebody to QSY when somebody steps on me or I have bad fading or, or other noise issues. Um, and this would simply automate that process. Now I can see what you mean. For a soldier in the field, uh, does ALE in its current incarnation make the radio and the function of the radio somewhat transparent to the operator? In other words, he or she just operates and the radio chooses the frequency, makes the connection, and so on? That, that's exactly correct. Uh, one of the issues with using HF versus using satellite, for example, is a satellite is very easy to use. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of training to use a SATCOM terminal and, or even a SAT phone. It is trivially easy for most people. Um, HF, as we all know, is, is a little bit more complicated. 
And one of the things that ALE does and, and why HF is, is kind of experiencing a bit of a rebirth lately, we could call it, is because of ALE. The, the average guy in the field who's not a radio operator, who has limited exposure to these things, um, can simply get his radio, dial up whoever he needs to talk to, push a button, and the radio at least attempts to do the rest. So absolutely. I think without this functionality that ALE brings, uh, interest in HF outside of the amateur community would probably still be falling. But what we've seen is ALE is one of the, the components that's actually bringing HF back to life, so to speak, for a lot of non-amateur um, applications. If I had to ask you to drag out your crystal ball, how do you see this playing out with amateur radio? Well, I think there are a couple of things where it could add value. I, I think absolutely in, until the, the solar cycle picks back up again, we're, we're going to continue to see challenging propagation and, and anything that helps us pick a good frequency um, for calling CQ or reaching a certain station is, is always welcome and valuable. Um, I think we all know that amateur radios have been a huge contributor to our knowledge of HF in, in the wider world. And I, I think that we have been pioneers in that community for a very long time. In a way, I think uh, 4G ALE is a, a chance for the, the, how should I put, the government military community to give back to the amateur community. I think there's a lot we can learn from it that we can incorporate into applications or technologies of our own that we can use. So if I were to look into the crystal ball, will the amateur community adopt 4G ALE? Probably not. Uh, can we learn a lot from it and develop applications and technologies that can help us? I, I think we can. And I think that alone deserves is, is worthy of another look at ALE and seeing where we can leverage what's been done to help the amateur community. That could be a fascinating future, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.